So this morning, we're going to do some theology. Unrelated, we have uh, two exits back there and a couple up here. I had to. No, please don't leave. <laughs> when, when I say theology, I don't mean dry, academic, abstract musings about God. No. Nor do I mean finally figuring out exactly what God is like once and for all. No. When I say theology, doing theology, I mean thinking about God in ways that that help us live as God's representatives here on earth. I mean bringing all of our, our mental energies our emotional sensitivities, our our life experiences, bringing those things together in service of one task and one task only. That is thinking well about God. Now, all theological language, all talk of God, is at best metaphor or analogy. With, With our finite Limited human minds, we cannot come close to grasping what God is truly like in his essence. We can't. In doing theology, then, we're often using what we know, images, concepts, categories, stories, to speak about something we do not know and, frankly, cannot fully know. And that is a transcendent, infinite God. So theology isn't about figuring God out once and for all, but finding ways to think about God, ways that are supported by Scripture, tradition and experience, mantras almost, that that help us live as God's representatives here on earth. Okay, so there's that. Now, years ago, not many years, of course, I'm a baby, according to some of you probably, but a couple of years ago in some of my first theology courses, I learned, I was told that God the Son, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God the Son is begotten of God the Father, begotten. Now, one of the oldest, most iconic pronouncements of this It can be found in the Nicene Creed, which comes from 381, the 4th century. And you've probably heard it, and this is how the first few lines read. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, etc., etc. So God the Son, it says, is begotten, not created, since that would make him inferior and not divine, and there's a heresy attached to that called Arianism, nor is he of independent existence entirely, because that would imply two different gods. Rather, he is begotten. Begotten. But what does it mean, what does it really mean to say that God the Son is begotten? 
you know, I think it's a great idea to avoid heresy, but if, if begotten lacks any positive meaning for us, then why bother using that word? Why not come up with something else? Now, I don't think I began to understand what this word begotten might mean until, believe it or not, just a few weeks ago. <laughs> now, in my seminary training, I'd been forced to read thousands of pages of systematic theology. Uh, I was uh, required to go to hundreds of hours of lectures on theological subjects. But it, it took a poet, of course, it took a poet to finally bring home what eternally begotten, begotten, what that might mean. Now, there's a professor at Western Washington University, still alive, still writing, teaching. Bruce Beasley is his name. And I have this uh, collection of devotional poetry through the ages, and I, I came across one of his poems. It's a poem about the Trinity that's called, Having Read the Holy Spirit's Wikipedia. That's the title of the poem. And so I read it, and this is the excerpt that stood out to me. And I'll just read a couple lines. He says, I can't keep straight sometimes which one of you is you. There's one who fractures off from light as light, I know, and one, is that one you? Eternally begotten. So never not at just that instant being born. Never not at just that instant being born. Now, the poem goes on, and it's well worth the read. You can ask me for it after. But when I read that final line for the first time, it stopped me dead in my tracks. Never not at just that instant being born. Wow. I want you to stop for a moment and think of the birth of a child. Any child. If you're a parent, I think you could think of the birth of one of your children. If you're not a parent, I'm sure you have relatives or friends who've welcomed a new child into their home. Think of the intensity, the, the transition, the, the newness, the freshness, the sense of wonder and growth. A little less intense but related, some of us are probably planting seeds right now. You put a seed in the dark, damp soil and you wait and wait. And hopefully it breaks open. You see this young green seedling just, just reach up into this new world. A couple days ago, I, I woke up early. I opened the door, let the dog out, and, and the morning was just fresh. The air was, was new. The sun was waking up. There's freshness, generation, newness, life. Eternally begotten, as this poet suggests, might mean, can helpfully mean, never not at just that instant being born. 
Never not at, at just that instant, emerging from a womb, fresh, full of wonder. Never not at just that instant, uh, reaching up out of that dark, damp soil into this new world of light and life. To say that the Son of God is begotten is to say that, and of course we're dealing in metaphor here, but that somehow he, he exists always in this state of freshness, this state of, of constantly being generated from the Father, this state of newness, possibility in life. And friends, First Peter, First Peter says that somehow you do too. And so I invite you now to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And like I said last week, uh, during the season of Easter, we're going to be looking at selections in 1 Peter. And so last week, we looked at verses 3 through 9, and this week we'll look at a section toward the end of the chapter, verses 22 through 25. So 1 Peter 1, just verses 22 through 25 And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since... You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You may be seated. Now, after reading this short passage, you might say, Jonah, where on earth do you see anything here about believers being eternally begotten? And to that I would respond... That's a fair question. Now, it's true, I think, that the original readers of 1 Peter in the first century and the original author himself would have likely had no idea or little idea what this concept, eternally begotten, might mean. But you and I, we, we are not the original readers. Far from it, actually. Friends, we stand at a a moment in time preceded by hundreds and hundreds of years of of committed, intense, painstaking theological reflection. So, So when we read Christian scripture today in the 21st century, we have the privilege of reading these texts theologically. And that is asking deep questions about God. From these texts, and consequently asking 
deep questions about ourselves. So this morning, that is precisely what I plan to do. I want to dig deep in this short passage, asking what does it say about God, and then what does it say about us? So that is my plan, but before we really dive in, let's take a moment, just a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. We stand on the shoulders of so many who have given their lives to the study of your word, to your ministry, dying for the sake of Christ. And so, Lord, when we come to these texts, when we begin to think about you, we are depending on the lives, the work of so many others who've come before. I pray that you would soften our hearts this morning, that you would bring light to our minds and help us not to just learn truth that'll become dusty in some storeroom in our brains, but rather truth that will be useful, that will help us to accomplish your, your mission here on earth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray for all these things. Amen. So like I said, this comes at the end of chapter 1, and so we do well to see it in its context. Uh, in your ESV Bibles, you'll have these headings. And so chapter 1, if you go back a few pages, verses 3 through, I believe, verse 12, you get this heading, Born Again to a Living Hope. And last week, we talked about uh, what is it that, that gets us out of bed in the morning now that we know that we carry the death of Jesus in our bodies. How do we keep going after Easter Sunday? I talked about the living hope, the eternal inheritance, the salvation that, that awaits us and that gives us hope even amidst trial. The original audience here, they're, they're called exiles or sojourners because they are citizens of a new world that is growing, but this old world still exists. And so during the time of their, their sojourning, their exile, you could say, they are called to be holy. It's the next heading you'll get, verses 13 through 25, till the end of the chapter. And they're exhorted to uh, conduct themselves uh, through fear, fear of God, to honor God with their lives. And the, the chief way in which they are to do this is by loving one another earnestly. And that is the command that we find, the central command in our section which is verses 22 through 25. So let's just jump in. Let me just say that the, the syntax in these verses is very complex. Um, it's, it's not a straightforward, clear sentence. If you were beginning to learn English, you probably wouldn't uh, speak or read a sentence like this. This is pretty complicated. The best way, I think, to imagine it is like a sandwich. Um, You've got this command at the end of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is the command, and that is the meat of the sandwich, or the, the tofu if you're a vegetarian or something, right in the middle. And then before it, we have this since phrase. I know it's translated having, but you could translate it since, just like the one in 23. So there are two reasons why they are to love one another earnestly. And it makes up kind of the lower bun and the, the upper bun, that sort of thing. 
So the command is love one another earnestly, and let's, let's deal with the, the first piece, the first since in verse 22. Peter takes for granted that these believers, their souls, which as I've said before is not some little spiritual part of them, but in ancient Greek refers to the whole person, he takes for granted that their entire selves have been purified, cleansed, and this is a word for ceremonial cleansing, ritual cleansing, but it's, it's used metaphorically here. Their whole selves have been cleansed, purified by means of obedience to the truth, is what he says. And it's likely that the truth here in context is referring to the message about Jesus, the gospel truth that was proclaimed to them. So as they trust in this message, as they trust that Jesus is the Savior of their souls, it says their whole person is is purified, is cleansed. But that isn't just for their own benefit. It says that whole process is for, it's almost a finger pointing toward, for sincere brotherly love. Having one's soul cleansed by Trusting this message is, is in order that you might love one another as Christ loved us. So that is the since. Since all of that has taken place, you must, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnest love, fervent, unhypocritical, that's literally how you would translate it. This kind of love can only come from pure hearts, hearts that have been cleaned or purified, but it's not hearts that are purified through perfect obedience to the law of Moses, to man-made traditions or anything like it, but I think, I think that it is hearts cleansed by obedience to the truth here, which is the gospel, trusting in Christ. So we have the middle piece, the command, and this first since, and then we get a second since in verse 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been, the ESV says, born again. Born again. I think this is better translated, re-begotten, or begotten again, or something like that. There's another word that's commonly used of birth, the actual birth of a child, and that is not the word used here. This is a rare word. It's only found three times in the New Testament. All three occurrences are in 1 Peter. And so we see it in chapter 1 before, last week. It says, God, according to his rich mercy, caused us to be born again, re-begotten toward a living hope. So that's the same word. This refers to the whole, the whole process, the holistic process of bringing a person into existence, begetting them. In, in the patriarchal context here, you could say sire, you sired a child, uh, a father, a head of a household, bring about the, the birth of a child through marriage, etc. So it doesn't refer simply to the, the birth event, but generally the process of bringing something into being. And the tense of this word is, is past, but also present. It's the perfect tense. And so it's you have been re-begotten 
But that wasn't just an isolated event with no ramifications for the future. There are results in the future that keep happening and happening. It says, you have been re-begotten, not through seed that is perishable, not through the seed you, you put in the dirt which has to die and break open to create new life, not through the seed that human males contribute and human females take in to produce a child, perishable, like every aspect of our earth, the tissue of this earth, the flesh is perishable. It says, you've been rebegotten through seed that is imperishable, incorruptible. And then he names that seed. That is, namely, in other words, the living and abiding Word of God. It says, you must, you can love one another earnestly, sincerely, because in trusting Christ you've been cleansed and you've actually been regenerated, are, are being regenerated by a seed that never dies. A seed that is also called the living and abiding Word of God. Now, there's two ways, I think, to interpret this, the Word of God. You could think of the spoken message that is the gospel, the Word of God. God speaks, verbal speech. But in John's gospel, the beginning of John's gospel, the Word of God is famously interpreted as God the Son, the Logos. It says, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through that Word, everything that exists today came into being. Had to be through that Word. And so somehow, we're to hold these together, that the spoken Word of God, the, the let there be light, let there be land, the spoken Word of God is also God the Son, who has become flesh, the incorruptible seed it's re-begotten us. He then reaches into Isaiah chapter 40, which is the beginning of this long stretch in Isaiah 40 through 66, which is speaking to the Israelites who'd been in exile, saying, you are released, the time has come, finally, restoration, life back in the land, come out of your cells, come out of darkness, restoration, new life. And the prophet asks, what, what shall I say, given this new reality? What shall I cry out? And he says, say this, all flesh, all earthly tissue is like grass. And, and its glory, its fame, its splendor is located in its flower. The grass is flower. However, the grass will dry up and the flower will fall away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. That means earthly flesh, our, our bodies, our earthly lives in this old world will perish, will fade away. But the seed that is the word of God, his spoken word, which has become flesh, that abides forever. And lastly, at the end of verse 25, we get this striking statement that the word of which Isaiah speaks, the word of the Lord, is, Peter says, it is 
the, the word which was gospeled to you, the word which was proclaimed to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of his life, death, and resurrection, that is the imperishable seed. Now, I want to jump back. I mentioned Genesis. God, in the beginning, as you likely know, in the beginning of the Old Testament, it says God spoke creation into existence. He says, let there be, let there be. Everything that comes to exist comes through the, the speech, the word of God in Genesis 1. And then, like I said, in, in John 1, which is just a rendition of Genesis 1, in a Christian key, it says the word was with God. Capital W here. The word was God, and everything that came to be came through the word. I think creation's relationship to God reflects the Son's relationship with the Father. So theologically, you could say that God the Father, this is kind of weird, but God the Father has always been speaking God the Son. Now, I have the privilege of being married to someone who's studying speech-language pathology and can tell me a lot about speech and what it takes to produce speech. And friends, for, for us to create sound, for sound to exist, what I'm doing right now, there needs to be cognitive intention, breath, need to breathe in breath and exhale breath, upwards of 70 different muscles in the chest and in the face are coming together, the vocal folds are, are shaping themselves in a very specific way, but if I stop any of that, the speech stops. In the same way that I beget speech and need to constantly be re-begetting it for it to exist, God the Son is, is the speech of God the Father. And I think that is why we see this language, the Word, the Word, the Word. We're speaking in metaphor here. Remember that analogy? But in a way, I think God the Father is always freshly begetting the Son, speaking the Son. And friends, I don't know if you know this, but when you trust in Jesus, when you hear the message about Jesus coming to rescue us from sin, coming to offer his life as sacrifice for us so that we don't experience separation from God, so that we can be saved, restored, when we trust in Christ, we're united to him. Which, which means that we're welcomed into the life of God. Try to imagine that. We're welcomed into this triune, divine life of God as we're united to Christ. And as we share in Christ's existence, we share in, in His eternally begotten nature too. That means as Christians, we share in an existence that is marked by freshness, that is marked by dependence on the Father for our every breath, 
that is marked by, by newness, possibility, wonder, movement, and growth that is marked by life. But most importantly, friends, I'd say, that is marked by love. Our love for one another, our unhypocritical, sincere love for one another, is the result of sharing in this divine life. St. Augustine, around the time the Nicene Creed was written, he once described the Holy Spirit as, as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Famous image. Metaphor, of course. Famous image. As Christians who are caught up in God's life, we experience that love. I know I said weeks ago that as Christians we carry the death and trauma of Jesus in our bodies. We do. Right now, we do. But we also participate in His eternal freshening, His his eternal dependence, His eternal generation and regeneration being, being spoken out of the mouth of God. And from this state of existence, of of always being freshly born, comes a love that is out of this world. Like I said, the only command in this passage is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I think the only way we can do this is because we share in the very life and love of God. A life that is marked, that's held together. A life that is even constituted by infinite, selfless, earnest love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these depths. Your word is is living and active and we can never reach the, the bottom of it. And that's not really the point. The point is to keep swimming, to swim deeper and deeper, and to know that you are with us in all of it. Lord, I pray that you would guide us as a community of believers as we approach these texts at this moment with the, the Spirit of God, this treasure in clay vessels, that together, Lord, we would Get to whatever depths we need to get to, to be your representatives here on earth. Jesus, we thank you so much for being the only begotten Son of God. And thank you so much for inviting us into the relationship you have with the Father. Help us to cherish that, to savor that relationship, to really feel it this morning and this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.